Well, hello again. Yeah, my name is Reese. if we haven't had the privilege of meeting yet. Uh, I've had the joy of being one of the pastors here for a little over three years, and wow, it has been such a joy. Um, Larissa and I, we came here in 2020, um, which was everyone's favorite year, and when we got here, uh, we were just dating, like, and this was really new to us. We had just uh, finished up at Trinity Western in Langley, and, um, you know, we kind of jumped out of that current into what God was doing here at Calvary um, in a really interesting time. Um, and from the get-go, we have felt so welcomed by this church family. Um, everyone from the kids to seniors, everyone in between, it's been a real joy. Um, I was trying to come up with one word that I would use to describe Calvary, and the, the one word that kept coming back into my mind was faithful. This community is so faithful, faithful to God and the advancement of the gospel in Coquitlam and beyond, um, faithful to one another, like faithful friends, uh, and we have felt your faithfulness towards us these last number of years. And that has been a gift in which I don't know if we'll ever fully have words to describe um, it's just how beautiful that is. And so, you know, moving forward, what, wherever the Lord might take Larissa and I, like, no, we are a part of your legacy as a church. Um, and that it has been just an absolute joy being able to be one of your pastors for the last three years. Um, we are in the first Sunday of Advent. Uh, we lit the candle of hope. And what we're going to do is we are, f- for, the, for the duration of Advent, going to be going through a series, a teaching series, called Encountering Christmas. And what we're going to do is we're going to take a deep look into some of these famous stories that we often recite during Advent and go a little bit deeper and find out what we can bring um, and apply to our lives from them. And so today's text is Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. So if you have your Bibles, you can feel free to flip open to Matthew 1, verses 18 to 25. The text should be on the screen behind me as well. Okay. All right, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. 
All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. Verse 23, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she had gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Um, we've all been in situations of misunderstanding, haven't we? Of confusion. I, I know there's been many moments in my life in which uh, the end of the moment or conversation was, oh my goodness, what a big misunderstanding. Uh, maybe in your life you can think of those moments. Uh, Larissa and I were traveling across Europe uh, for a brief little period, um, and there were a lot of misunderstandings as we travel across Europe. We found our way to a little bed and breakfast in Italy, and uh, we shared no language commonalities, um, and it was hilarious trying to communicate and navigate through our misunderstandings with them. As we look into this story, we'll see a God that meets us in our misunderstanding, that's gracious to us in our misunderstanding and confusion. And we'll also see a God who makes himself present and hints at his coming rescue. So the way I'm going to approach this text is by we're going to look at three things. So first, we're going to immerse ourselves in Joseph's circumstance and world. Second, we're going to explore ways in which God might want to guide us today, just as he did with Joseph. Third, we're going to take a look at how Matthew, who's the gospel writer here, purposefully weaves specific language and themes into this story to tell us about God's presence and rescue. Uh, would you pray with me one more time? God, we're so grateful for a moment in which we can just briefly be in your word and look to glean some valuable, treasured truth from this text. God, would you, by your Holy Spirit, penetrate our hearts, form us into your image, and be with us. In your name we pray, amen. So the, the account of Jesus' birth that I feel that most of us would be familiar with would be the one that's told in the Gospel of Luke. And so this is uh, from Mary's point of view. It's one that we often recite here at Christmas time. Uh, the one that we read here has quite a different tone. Um, first, obviously, it's a different point of view. It's through Joseph's lens instead of through Mary's lens. And second, the tone feels sober. There's something about it that feels uh, a little more bleak than Mary's journey as we see, you know, her, her sing a song. The shepherds get led to the manger, you know, even just like our, the joy of that moment. We don't really get all of that detail in this story. And then we ask the question, who's Joseph? Joseph, this man who many of us might have ideas or thoughts about, but really, we, we don't really know that much about Joseph. So here's a few things that through reading the Gospels, we can piece together about who Joseph was. 
Number one, he was a carpenter. That was his vocation. That was his trade. Um, in Matthew 13, 55, uh, as people are growing in skepticism about Jesus' ministry, they, they kind of say to Jesus, aren't you the son of that carpenter? Like, you're no one special. And so Joseph, we know, was a carpenter. Next, we know that King David, the famous Old Testament saint, was his ancestor. So we see this confirmed not only in the genealogy previous at the beginning of Matthew, but also in Luke chapter 3, verse 23. And then it says in this text that we just read that uh, he was a righteous man. That's what it says in the NRSV, or a just man, as it says in the ESV. In the text that we just read, it says he was faithful to the law. So the word righteous in scripture, it's, it's the same as, it's synonymous with right relationship. And so Joseph, he was a right relationship man. He was in right relationship with God. He was in right relationship with the law. And he was in right relationship with others. And so Joseph, he was a good man, solid. People could trust him. He was uh, a man of goodwill. And lastly, we know that he was pledged to be married to Mary. And so marriage uh, at this time looked so much different than we think of marriage in our time. So in the first century, marriage was unique in that it had three distinct steps. So here are the steps. Number one was the engagement step. So some similarities to how we do marriage today, but there was this very formal ceremony in which uh, the couple would promise themselves to one another in the presence of many people, and there would be a meal, and again, it was very formal. Um, even reading up on this had me reflecting on Larissa and I's own engagement, which um, I had every attempt uh, for it to be somewhat formal, but it ended up being quite a wild ride. Um, what I had done was I had gathered some of Larissa's close friends, and I had uh, asked them to take Larissa to various different checkpoints in which we had important moments in our relationship. I mean, in there she would read a letter and stuff like that, and then all of it would culminate in this one location where we had one of our earliest hangouts together as a couple. And so it was right by the Fraser River, and I was gonna go further ahead of time to wait for Larissa while she would go through these checkpoints and then finally end up here with this beautiful location where I would propose. And so I go to the location and it was right by the Fraser River, close to Fort Langley. And I drive up, and there's a grassy area. And I see five or six fishermen peeing on the grass where I was going to propose to Larissa. And I go up to them, and I said, excuse me. Um, I'm about to, I said, listen, here's the situation. I'm about to propose to my fiance here. Um, can you please give us some space? I said that kindly. And they were like, oh my goodness, of course, of course. When is it going to be? Oh, in, in 10 minutes? Oh, okay. We'll be out of here. Don't worry. Their boat was just kind of on the riverbank. And so they, you know, cleaned up and scurried down to the boat. And uh, they got in the boat. And I'm watching them to try and make sure that they're going to be well away in time for Larissa to arrive and for us to have this moment together. Um, but I keep looking over and they're just standing there. I'm like, come on. 
And I'm not going to create any further tension with them. And so I just kind of leave them. Larissa arrives. And for our engagement, we were lucky enough to have a group of fishermen cheering us on <laughs> right behind us. So for all, all my attempts, it wasn't as formal as I thought. Uh, second step was betrothal. Uh, this was the legally binding step. This was um, in which the couple was legally married, yet they were to live apart for a year, not sharing a home, not sharing a bed. Um, I know if, <laughs> if I were to ask uh, couples today if they want to bring that one back, I think it'd be a resounding no. Living apart for a year. And then lastly, it was the ceremony. The whole village gathers to celebrate the couple. There's food, there's wine, there's dancing. It's a massive party in which the couple is the focus and the whole community comes together to bless and honor them. For all the Lord of the Rings nerds, think Bilbo's 111st birthday on steroids. It's an amazing party. So Joseph and Mary were in the betrothal stage. He would have been living and breathing expectation. He would have been emotionally charged, getting ready for this beautiful, long, rich life together with the woman he loves. Then it's the shocking news. Mary's pregnant. The only explanation from jo Joseph's point of view for Mary's pregnancy was that she had been unfaithful and cheated on him. And so according to the law, a woman who is unfaithful would be openly taken to court and exposed for breaking the law. So Joseph, he's a righteous man. He wants to do right by Mary and do right by the law. So he does not exercise this right to take her to court. He doesn't want to shame her or see her stoned. Plans to divorce her quietly and move on with life. And so you could imagine in this moment that Joseph would be feeling such a deep and sharp pain, a sickening sense of betrayal, raw confusion. And in Joseph's wrestling, in his pain, in his confusion, an angel appears to him in a dream. Says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you were to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Can you imagine being Joseph in this moment? That in what might have been up to this point in his life, one of the most painful experiences, humiliating, uh, a dream, an angel, a son who will save the people from their sins. I mean, what a turn of events. And so God communicates with his people 
And when we live in righteousness, right relationship, and seek to be right with God and with others, God comes to us in our fear and in our doubt and guides us. And what I want to talk about for a moment is how. How does he do it? Is this just an over-embellished origin story like a comic book? Is it just a legend? That God would, in a moment of deep pain, appear uh, in a dream. He would send an angel to appear in a dream. Is, that, is, is this just myth? Does God, I think the question on most of our hearts, does God still intervene in the lives of humans and provide guidance? And if so, how does he do it? I love what Dallas Willard says. He says, and I think it speaks to really how we feel about this topic. He says, on the one hand, we have massive testimony to and widespread faith in God's personal guiding communication with us. On the other hand, we also find a pervasive and often painful uncertainty about how hearing God's voice actually works today. I wonder if anyone in here feels that. A sense of expectation. You've, you've heard, you've, you've maybe witnessed God speaking to someone. Yet, there's also a painful uncertainty. I love that language about how God actually does it. When it comes to conversation about uh, God's intimate, personal, and unique guidance for, for humans, we have to recognize two tendencies that we have. So, first tendency is to place God in a box. We have a, a wild tendency to do that as humans. To attribute almost all of our experiences and circumstances to a natural instead of supernatural cause. We believe God is overseeing things, but most of what we experience in our circumstances, we think, you know, this has a natural cause and effect. If it rains, I get wet, it's just because it rained. Second is our tendency to attribute almost all of our experiences and circumstances to a supernatural instead of natural cause. Um, it's like finding that awesome parking spot at Costco. And it's like, yes, God, you, you did it again. You helped me find the parking spot. And the woman that you just cut off is like, dang it. <laughs> and so it's, it's everything has a supernatural cause instead of a, a natural cause. And some of this can be cultural. I've been in areas in the world in which, for example, if it rains, God had something to do with it. But for the most part in our culture, if it rains, we kind of think, you know what? We know exactly why it's raining. God guides us in many ways. So many ways. More than, than we could even count. That's true. That's the truth. He guides us in a lot of different ways. What's also true is we live in a world that is impacted by the natural, all set into motion by God. And that's also true. Both these things can exist. So our tendency to go to either extreme isn't really necessary when it comes to our conversation about how God guides us. So if God does guide us today, like he did with Joseph then through the dream, how can we expect to be guided by 
our Father. Here's a few to make note of, and this is by no means an exhaustive list. So, primarily through Scripture, and I love this quote by Frederick Meyer. He says, the written word is the wire along which the voice of God will certainly come to you if the heart is hushed and the attention fixed. So primarily through scripture. And so many of us, I think in our lives, we are begging for a word from God while our Bibles are gaining dust on our nightstands. So primarily through scripture. Uh, Number two, the wise counsel of godly elders. We can't count that out. The words of trusted friends. I've had so many times in my life in which I have received the intimate guidance from the Lord through just an encouragement or advice of a trusted friend. An inner prompting, that still, small voice. Sometimes through unique circumstances, like in the situation and story that we just read, a dream. So, uh, we, we see that God spoke to Joseph through a dream. There are multiple different instances in Scripture in which God speaks to someone through a dream or a vision. We think of Paul um, and the Macedonian man that appeared to him, beckoning him to come and minister to his people. Um, one of my, my heroes, Lauren Cunningham, who's uh, the founder of Youth with a Mission, Um, The whole organization and movement of Youth with a Mission in which both Larissa and I and I know many others have been really blessed by, um, it was inspired by God speaking to Lauren in a dream. And so God can guide us through unique circumstances like something like a dream or a vision. So Joseph, he's a right relationship man, a righteous man in confusing and confounding circumstances. And it's through one of the most unique ways God can speak to someone, through a dream that God communicates to him in profound clarity. He, it could not be more clear to Joseph what's going on. It's not, a, it's not a picture that he has to interpret. It's audible. So God's angel says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. He speaks right to what Joseph is feeling. Fear. Fear. God ministers to a fearful and heartbroken man. Our world is desperate. Crying out for God's intervention into our fear into our heartbrokenness and into our confusion. I genuinely uh, think that the root of so much of our expressed emotion in our culture, whether it be anger over a justice issue, whether it be sadness over loss, really it's rooted in confusion so often. It's, I thought things were supposed to go differently or things aren't as they should be. It's a confusion of why is this stuff happening? And uh, God, could you please explain? I know that so many conversations I have with people and, and the struggles that they're experiencing in life, it's rooted in confusion. I expected differently. 
things aren't happening as I thought they would. And I love this story because we see that God speaks right into that. That he does, it's true. That God does not want us to dwell in confusion. That's not his plan for us. He communicates and he guides. The living God, living and active today, by his Holy Spirit, communicates and guides to us. And that's good news. I love what Jesus says. I am the light of the world. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life, the path illuminated ahead of them. God communicates and guides to his confused people. So what does Matthew, the gospel writer, want us to know here? What is he trying to subtly and not so subtly communicate to the readers? So much has been said about how Matthew, the writer, that his gospel is the the most Jewish of the four gospels. And so as the early church, they began to collect books for the first New Testament canon in the fourth century, this was the most popular gospel. Matthew uses language and tradition to speak to a Jewish audience at the time in an attempt to effectively communicate Jesus' life and ministry and good news, the gospel. And we see this on full display as Matthew is penning Jesus' birth narrative and origin story. So Matthew is subtly confirming Jesus' identity as the Messiah while also hinting at Jesus' role as rescuer and redeemer of humanity. So Matthew, or sorry, first in verse 23, this is what he says, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel. So Matthew here, he's written pretty well verbatim Isaiah 7, 14. This is what it says. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign about this Emmanuel, this Messiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call him Emmanuel. So Jewish people in this time, they would have been very familiar with this text, acutely familiar with this verse as a prophetic language foreshadowing the coming of Emmanuel. And second, Matthew wants his readers to pay really close attention to the two names of the Messiah. First, Emmanuel, God with us. Matthew is saying that Yahweh of the Old Testament is here in the flesh. And this name was sacred. uh, No one would have ever just named their child Emmanuel during this time. This was, uh, woven into this name was expectation and prophecy. And this is the, the theme, the overarching theme of Matthew's gospel and how he frames the whole narrative. At the very end, Jesus promises to his followers that he will be with them until the end. So, second is Jesus. The name Jesus. The name that we sing and proclaim. Jesus, in Hebrew, it's the same as Joshua. Popular name at the time. Very, very popular name at the time. So Joshua, if we're familiar with the Old Testament, is the one that brought the Israelites into the promised land after the death of Moses. He was a a hero in their culture. So this is what um, N.T. Wright says, and I, I genuinely 
uh, don't think it could be said better about what Matthew's intention is here. He says, Matthew sees Jesus as the one who will now complete what the law of Moses pointed to, but could not of itself produce. He will rescue his people, not from slavery in Egypt, but from the slavery of sin. The exile they have suffered, not just in Babylon, but in their own hearts and lives. How good is that? Jesus is the one to deliver his people to the ultimate promised land. And that's exactly what Matthew as the writer is trying to help us be aware of as we read this story. And so do you see how Matthew's kind of subtly nudging the readers, saying his name is Jesus and Emmanuel, the two names, the God who rescues and delivers, and the God who was ever-present with his people. So Joseph, this man who we know very little about, in that moment with the angel, in this dream, is one of the very first to know of the one who would change the course of history. One of the very first to be introduced to the one who'd change everything. So how did that change Joseph's life? What was, how did his trajectory shift? Immediately we know that all worry and concern about his situation with Mary was cast aside. He was in right relationship with God. He trusted God that this was his plan. He married the woman he was betrothed to and raised Jesus with her. What did the rest of his life look like? We don't have the answer to that question. We don't know what Joseph's trajectory was. What I can imagine, and what I, what I believe we can imagine together, is that for Joseph, there were many more moments in which he felt confused, lost, in pain, troubled. Almost weekly. At the same time, there were likely many moments in which he felt God in his goodness communicating to him and guiding him through all of the pain, all of the trouble, all of the confusion, because that's who he knows God to be. And I can imagine that through Jesus, the boy that he raised, he was continuously and consistently confronted with the very nature and character of God who is both present and who rescues. And the rest of our lives, Calvary, will hold moments of confusion and pain and trouble and grief and loss. There will also be moments, and I need us to know this, in which God in his goodness will communicate to you and guide you through all such moments. Our God's heart is to rescue and to deliver and to be present with us. Our God is with us. That's what we celebrate at Advent, this expectation, this hope, this assurance that we have a God who's so good 
that he would be with us in the flesh and with us in spirit. Jesus, the rescuer, Emmanuel, who's with us. So as we close, and I can invite up the worship team, I want to draw us into a time of reflection together. And so I'd love for you to just have a posture of prayer with me. If you want to close your eyes, if you're comfortable. I I just want to take a moment for us to meditate on this story that we've encountered this morning. Jesus, you're good to us. We know that you love to be invited into a space, and so we invite you here right now. And Holy Spirit, would you help us to reflect in our hearts about what part of Joseph's story do we feel that deep down we can relate to? God, for many of us, there's, and even right now in our lives, we're experiencing confusion feeling lost. God, we just offer that to you right now. We share that with you. Whatever confusion we're experiencing, whatever pain we're experiencing, we invite you into that. Jesus, you are rescuer, like Joshua of old one who walks with us and delivers us. And Jesus, you are also Emmanuel, forever with us. Would we reflect on how that impacts our lives to know deep down in the nooks and crannies of our soul that you have delivered us and that you are with us? How does that change our lives? And God, as we head into the Lord's Supper. We reflect on how the angel told Joseph that it's through Jesus that we will be saved from our sins. And we think about the suffering, the sacrifice, the cost, the price that Jesus paid to ensure that we would be free from the bondage of sin. We think about how we struggle with sin more than we ever dared believe. Yet despite that, you know us and love us more than we could ever know. In Christ's name, amen.